uh, community numbers are fluctuating, one day up, one day down, and, uh, but whatever it might be, I think that we are seeing some light at the end of the tunnel, so let's uh, press on, and uh, we trust that things will hopefully open up much more towards the end of this year, amen? And uh, whatever it might be, let's not complain, because today my message is going to be about full of complaints, okay? <laughs> And, um, you know, the, the subject matter I want to consider is taken from the book of Numbers because Numbers really has a lot of themes to it. It's not our favourite book to read, obviously, and many of us might not cite Numbers as a favourite book uh, in the Bible that we have. But nonetheless, you know, there are several ways to look at the book of Numbers. Of course, obviously, by the name of the book Numbers, uh, uh, it is called Numbers because there are two censuses that are taken and recorded for us in the book, both at the beginning as well as at the end. And we can look at that, uh, we can examine the book of Numbers based on those censuses. Now, the Jewish people don't call this the book of Numbers. They call it the book of Bamidbar, which means the wilderness. So what is recorded for them is the perspective that this was Israel's time when they were in the wilderness. But today, I want to propose to you another way of looking at the book of Numbers, and that's to consider seven major episodes that were recorded for us in this book. In each of these episodes, the children of Israel complained and rebelled against the Lord. So thematically, by considering these complaints, we can understand or examine what God wants to communicate to us through this book. Now, the thing about complaining is this, right? All of us have complained before. Amen? Please uh, don't hide this. I Probably just before you left the house to come to church today, you were complaining, okay? <laughs> but unlike the big sins like adultery, fornication, murder, theft, we really see complaining as something that is Man, it's only human to do it, isn't it? We close an eye to it. We accept it as part and parcel of life. We indulge in it even now and then. We complain about the food. We complain about people, their idiosyncrasies. We complain about the authorities. We complain when there's an extension of restrictions by another four weeks. And why aren't we opening up? We complain when it's too hot, also when it's too cold. We complain when the bus is late, when the queues are long, and when the internet is slow, we complain a lot, okay? And we're all guilty. And often, we don't even bat an eyelid when we are complaining. But the Bible has some very distinctive things to tell us about complaining. And I want to show you a couple of scriptures. The first in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. And it says, Do all things without complaining and disputing. Amen? I mean, this is so appropriate. This is so identifiable. Do all things. When your mom asks you to do housework and clean the dishes and clear your rooms, don't complain. Just do it, okay? And it goes on and says that, that you may be blameless, harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. It's something when we stop complaining, you know what? You really begin to shine. Shining for Jesus is not that difficult. All you need to do is start by not complaining. Amen? Yeah, it's a good start. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9 says this, show hospitality without complaining. You know why Peter says this? Because when we are hospitable or when we seek to be hospitable, people will take advantage of us. People will get on our nerves. So don't complain. Decide that you're going to show hospitality. Amen? In Jude 16, it says that these are grumblers, complainers, talking about those who are apostate. Right? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10 says, nor complain, as some of them also complain, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, the consequences of complaining can be very, uh, can be very dire, okay? But the truth is this, when you really examine the Bible carefully, you will find that there are some com legitimate complaints, isn't it? Do you know who, is, who in the Bible complained the most? 
or at least, you know, we are told that he complained a lot. And the person is Job. And Job complained many times to God about his situation and understandably so. I mean, he did everything right, acted, you know, you know in, in a way that is righteous as best as he could. And yet, what he went through makes no sense at all. And hence, he complains to God. Another book that is full of complaints is the book of Psalms. Did you know that? Yes, it's full of praise, but it's also full of complaints because the psalmist, about 30% of the time, was com were complaining and lamenting about the situation, the state of the nation of Israel, you know, and how the people have turned away from God. The difference between these complaints is that they are complaining to God and not about God. You understand that? And it's interesting also in Micah chapter 6, verse 2, that God himself lodged a complaint. And he said, Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint. And you strong foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a complaint against His people. He will contend with Israel, or He will bring a charge against Israel. I mean, God literally had a legitimate claim against Israel, and He lodged a complaint against them. Nonetheless, the case in point is that a lot of our complaints is not complaining to God, but it springs from a place where we have a misaligned perspective. We fail to understand what God is doing. Or it springs from a place of ingratitude where we're not grateful, or from pride or from lust where we are lasting after something and we complain about that. So as we examine the book of Numbers and these seven episodes of complaint that are made by Israel, I believe it's going to be a definite source of instruction for us. Now, my intention is not for you all to walk out of this service, you know, at the end of this and whip yourself, oh, I'm such a complainer, I'm horrible, you know, and not wanting this to be a conviction, but may the Lord convict us nonetheless, okay? But what I really hope for is that as we look at these things, these insights will help us understand something about God's ways. It'll stir love in our hearts towards the Lord, okay? So very quickly, let me give you these seven episodes of complaining. Am I going too fast for you guys? Somebody uh, texted me last night after the service and said, Hey, Pastor you've been running a lot, right? Your stamina is better. I noticed you don't need to breathe very much when you speak nowadays, you know? <laughs> Let me slow down, okay? Numbers chapter 11 begins with the first episode. It says this, they complain about the food, okay? In chapter 12, they complain about Moses and his wife. In chapter 13 to chapter 14, they complain about the giants as they were about to cross into the promised land. Chapter 16, they complain about the leadership of Moses and Aaron and led a rebellion against it. Chapter 16 and 17, the people complained about how the rebellion was dealt with. Chapter 20, they complained about water. In chapter 25, they were seduced uh, by Balaam and, Bala and, uh, and the Moabs and uh, they sinned and rebelled against the Lord. Now, I can't possibly go through each of these episodes and tell you what it is all about, okay? And there's just too much in it. There's a lot of uh, meat in it. There's a lot of things that we can learn from it. But what instead I want to do is I want to thread together all these seven episodes with some important lessons that can be seen throughout these seven episodes. The first of which is this, that words are contagious, right? And in all these episodes, okay, there's something about how the complaining spreads. They all spread through words, through people complaining with their mouths, and then it goes from one person to the other. And I want to begin with Numbers chapter 11, verse 1. And this is not one of the seven episodes, but it begins these seven episodes. And let me read to you verse 1. It says, Now when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, for the Lord heard it, and His anger was aroused. So the fire of the Lord burned against them and consumed some on the outskirts of the camp. Now this is the first 
instance in which we are told that the children of Israel complain. But what is very, very interesting is that unlike the other seven episodes that I've stated to you, the facts are not given to us, nor the details alluded to as to what they were complaining about. We don't know. We just know that they're murmuring and they're grumbling in their tents. Right? And unlike, you know, and, and, and as a result, this first judgment, you know, uh, we're not given any details about what is it that they were upset about. Now, I believe this, that when the Bible excludes details, it is really important. Instead of making the text more ambiguous, what it does, it acts as a spotlight to arrow in on the divine account that needs, that's drawing our attention. So this acts as a way to focus our attention on what God wants to bring across to us. And it is simply this, that the people were murmuring, they were whispering, they were complaining amongst themselves. And this is the starting point. It's a general complaining attitude. Now, this is a stark warning for us Singaporeans who love to complain, okay? You know, we complain about everything. We don't, sometimes we don't even need something to focus our attention on complaining. We just have a complaining attitude. And the imagery is conjured for us here is that God is in our homes. He's with us when we are not listening or we are not aware and is listening to our conversations. And in this case, what he heard displeased him and God brought a judgment. Now, there's something amazing for us and that's the fact of how words just spread like a contagion. And we understand this whole idea of a virus or a contagion, especially during this COVID season. Now, take for example, amongst English speakers, depending on which part of the world you come from, there are certain things that we like to say, right? Sometimes me and my three boys, you know, we like to fool around at home and one of the things we love to do is we love to imitate different accents, you know? Uh, one of our favourite accents to play around with is a, is a Russian accent. I won't try and do it, okay? This will be very embarrassing, okay? But at times, we'll do a British accent and, you know, whenever I do a British accent, there are certain words I always use. I always use the word brilliant. You notice how the British people always say brilliant. Oh, the word there is brilliant. Oh, this is brilliant. That is brilliant. And, you know, and, and just use the word brilliant and you sound fairly British, okay? Or the Aussies, they would like to use the word blokes. The Americans, they love to punctuate their words with, oh, like, you know, you know, like, you know, kind of thing. And it goes on like that. Singaporeans, we have our laws and our laws. The amazing thing is no one taught us to do this. There was no lesson in class that teaches you to punctuate every end of your sentence with a law or a law, but it's simply because we heard somebody say it. We say, we, you hear it being used, and, those, and speech influences speech. Words jump from one person to the next person, and before long, these colloquial terms act like a contagion, and we find ourselves repeating these same words. Think about it. There's a word that has been often used nowadays, right? The word narrative. Everybody likes to use the word narrative. Right? Digital natives, binge watching, you know, chillax for the younger people. And here in Singapore, umbridge, right? <laughs> Nobody knew that word until the guy used it, right? Now, in the, same, in the same manner, let me say this. Complaints beget complaints. Discontent fuels more discontent. Words that are murmured in one's ears, let me tell you this, does not remain there. But as it sits in our ears, it multiplies, it magnifies itself and then it goes off to more and more people. It contaminates our minds. It warps the way in which we see things. It passes on as offences. Words don't simply reside in our minds. Words filter into our spirit, into our souls, into our emotions, and it gets mixed up. And when it comes out, it is amplified. That's why Paul warns us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11, that we are to beware bitterness that springs up defiling many. This is a description, a single offense has the potential to infect many others through the agency of our words. 
I believe this, that when we are bitten by offenses and bitterness, it is far more fatal than the COVID virus. It's far more contagious as well. Amen? The second thing about complaining is that you've got to understand this, that the Bible takes a very serious view about words that slight others. Uh, and this is something that is condemned very strongly. Now, of all these episodes, these seven episodes, the one that really intrigues me a lot is the second one, in which we are told that Miriam and Aaron rose up and they complained against Moses. And this is found in Numbers chapter 12. So let me read you the first three verses. And I want to precursor this by telling you, you're going to read three verses that seem completely disjointed. Okay? In verse 1, Numbers 12, it says this, Miriam and Aaron spoke against, or they criticized Moses, because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married. In other translation, it says the Cushite, essentially indicating that it was a darker-skinned person. Okay? And it says, for he had married an Ethiopian or Cushite woman. That's verse 1. In verse 2, so they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? This is Miriam and Aaron lodging a complaint. Hey, God speaks to us as well. And the Lord heard it. Now in verse 3, it goes on and says, Now the man Moses was very humble or meek, more than all the men who are on the face of the earth. So three components in three verses in the same one account, and yet they seem vastly different and unrelated. It begins with a critique that is leveled against Moses' wife. Now, who is this wife? Is it Zipporah? Is it a second wife that he had after Zipporah passed away? We don't know. There are a lot of speculations, and I don't intend to go into it. What I do want to point out is this. The critique was racial in nature. Okay? They were basically criticizing her on the basis of the fact that she was darker skin. Right? This is something that is pervading the world today, and we understand this contest about uh, racial discrimination. Amen? Now, the next component is this, that Miriam then contests that God spoke through her and Aaron as much as he speaks through Moses. What has this got to do with the racial prejudice? I don't know. I'll explain it more later, okay? And then finally, the third verse is, that, uh, is a commentary about Moses' character that he was very, very meek. Three verses... Three apparently unrelated comments, and the result is that God shows up and he's angered by it, and he speaks in a very clear way to validate Moses. He says this very strongly. He says, all the other prophets, I speak to a vision, I speak to them through my voice, but with Moses, he sees me face to face. And that's a great validation. And then he goes on and, um, you know, he then punishes Miriam. And what is more important is that this single episode was referred to again in Deuteronomy chapter 24, specifically in verse 9. Now, Deuteronomy 24, that whole segment of, of chapters is very important because the, it, it, is, it is Moses distilling everything that God has done for the, for the nation of Israel to prepare them to enter the promised land. It was a final rehearsal. He's saying to Israel, Israel, remember all these things. These are the most important instructions as you go into the promised land. And in that verse, there's a reminder about what happened and what God did to Miriam. So this episode of criticism warrants a second mention in Deuteronomy 24, meaning this is very, very important in the eyes of God for us to enter into God's promises for our lives, okay? So what's the point here? The point is this. Number one is that racial prejudice is predicated on a sense of superiority that one feels over the other. Hey, I'm more superior by the color of my skin. By the, by the race that I'm in, 
You know, when, we, when you look down on somebody else's race, it is an expression of your own sense of superiority. Now, the underlying thought that is conveyed here then carries on into the second verse in which there's a sense of pride, okay, in Miriam and Aaron that ties them to a statement to say, hey, we are not lesser than you, Moses. So both of it is rooted in pride. You understand that? And then the third verse is Moses' response, which is the antithesis of pride. Moses doesn't vindicate himself. He doesn't shout. He doesn't fight. He simply bows his head to the critique and responds in meekness. And it is in this acquiescing of his right to defend himself that he shows himself to be the better man. Amen? And so this is the two components in this account. It is when you use your words to put someone down, right? And, 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 and with that, to belittle them, to put them in their place, to elevate ourselves or to assert our own sense of superiority. This is what God frowns upon. This is why the reminder is given in, in Deuteronomy 24. God says, you watch your words as you enter the promised land. And that's the power of words. This is the emphasis that we got to understand this, that we got to watch our words. We got to watch what we do in elevating ourselves and in putting others down. The two element that is obvious here is this. Number one, you put someone down. And number two, you put yourself up against above others. And when you do either of this, what you have done is you have committed the sin of Miriam. And it's so interesting that because Miriam's criticism was on the skin of uh, Moses' uh, wife, that the judgment on her also touched her skin when she contracted leprosy, right? And that's so appropriate because God will judge that. The words bounce back to us. And the, the solution to this is Moses' silence. His meekness paints for us a clear picture of what it takes to overcome complaints and criticism. There is something about meekness that snuffs complaints out. I don't know if you guys have been following a little controversy here in Singapore. You know, where this side is saying something, that side is saying something. And the more they say, the worse they become. Let me, let me not tell you exactly what it is, okay? Just go to Mothership, you can find out what's happening, okay? <laughs> I mean, think about, you know, and that's, this is so important, right? You think about not too long ago, somebody of great standing here in our, in our nation criticized somebody else, you know, for the, because of the education, the school that they went to. They belittled the person. And this is what this is about. Unless you should stand and judge and say, wow, that horrible guy, why did he do that? You and I, we've all done it before. The only difference is that he got caught. We didn't. But the sin is the same. The pride is the same. Amen? So let's not go pointing our fingers. Let's point fingers at ourselves first, okay? Now, the third element I want to bring across to us is this. What we say goes along with how we say it. You see, you've got to understand something about the Bible. The Bible is, does, never advocates a system that is totalitarian. I know that many times as Christians we pray, we say, Lord, you speak, we obey. But did you know that our biblical text, our, our religious text, is the only religious text, I believe, that actually encourages us to have a discourse with God, to literally wrestle with Him, to have a disagreement with God. Because the Bible records this for us. In the account of Abraham where he contended for Sodom and Gomorrah, he said, you know, is it just for you to destroy them if there is 10 people that are righteous in that land? And, and the contending that Abraham had with God was what promoted him to become a father over the nation. We're told Jacob wrestled with God and God did not prevail over Jacob. Jacob prevailed over God and God blessed him and changed his name. Israel means one who prevails against God. 
right? And then finally, of course, in the Jerusalem Council in the New Testament as well, we see this discourse happening where the council of elders came to an agreement that this is what is to be done. So you got to understand something about the nature of our faith that God desires. So it's important for us not to consider not just the content of what we say, but also how we say something. God doesn't want to suppress us from speaking, but we got to be careful how we say something. You see, in, in, in all these complaints, let me tell you this, God was more than willing to provide food for the children of Israel. If they wanted meat, God would have given them meat, right? God was well able to provide them with water. If they needed water, He would have provided water. God was willing to help them, but it was not about the thing that they're asking for. It is the way in which they have said it. They presented their needs in such a way that they turned their requests into complaints. Now, let me give you a sampling. Numbers 11 verse 5, the children of Israel said this. They said, We remember the fish that we had freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. While I'm saying this, some of you are already thinking about lunch, okay? And he says, now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all to expect, to expect except this mana, simi-mana, you know. <laughs> By the way, if you need a Hokkien translation for the word mana, it is simi-simi, okay? Because mana literally means, what? <laughs> what is this, okay? I mean, they broiled it, they pan-fried it, they stewed it, I mean, they baked it. They tried everything in mana and they're sick and tired of a supernatural provision that God gives to them. And instead of saying, Lord, would you give us they complain. In Numbers chapter 14, verse 2, they said, if only we had died in the land of Egypt, if only we had died in the wilderness. I mean, such ungratefulness. In Numbers 16, verse 13, he says, is it a small thing when they complain against uh, Moses that you brought us out of the land flowing with milk and honey? You see, the promise, the vision was this. God was going to bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey. But guess what it became? Now they look at the place of slavery in Egypt and he says, that was the land flowing with milk and honey that ingratitude produced something that they have lost sight completely of, that they were actually slaves when they were in Egypt. Finally, in Numbers 20 verse 5, it says, have you, Why have you made us come out of Egypt? Is it not a place of grain, or figs, or vines, or pomegranates? Nor is there any water to drink? The essence of that complaint is this. They were telling God, we were better off without you. We were better off on our own before the covenant with you. We were better off slaves then following you. As Christians, our vernac in our vernacular, it will be saying to God, Lord, it was better when I was a non-Christian. Now that I've become a Christian, it's terrible, right? And that's, that's a horrible thing to say to the Lord. You see, God is willing to provide food, drink. He's willing to help us overcome whatever obstacles you're facing. He's willing to promote and elevate us. All we need to do is learn to ask and not complain. In the account of the 12 spies, which is another one of the episodes, you got Caleb Joshua, who comes back with the 12. They all saw the same thing. But these two men sung a different tune from what the other 10 spies said. The difference is this. Their words carried hope. Their words were all about possibility. They kept saying, it is possible. We can do this as God is with us. But the other 10, what they brought is they brought despondency. They brought hopelessness. They brought a sense of being lost. We don't know what to do. Now, my question to us is this. What does our words evoke? When people talk to you, at the end of it, do they feel uplifted like they could take on the world? Do they feel uplifted, full of faith, full of belief, full of a sense of possibility? Or do they walk away thinking, man, this is so not worth it. I feel more depressed now than ever. Ask yourself, be honest. Ask the people around you. Do you deflate them or do you boost them? 
I'm going for my booster shot this afternoon. I'm not that old. I don't know why they invite me so early, you know? Now, many of us don't realize this, okay? Then the sending out of the 12 spies was a huge turning point for the nation of Israel. Because of their response, it became a turning point to disaster. A whole generation was condemned to die without hope. They failed to enter the promised land. But it was also a turning point for one particular person, and that's Joshua. Because in Numbers 13, verse 16, what we don't realize is that it was at this point of the sending of the 12 that Joshua experienced an encounter with God that drastically changed him and pushed him into his destiny. Because it was at this point that he experienced a change of name. Now, before this, in in, in Numbers 13, his name was not Joshua, his name was Hoshea. And of course, Moses was the one who changed his name from Hoshea to Joshua. Now, alphabetically in the Hebrew, it was a very, very minute little change. It was just an alphabet. But it was a big shift in meaning. Hoshea literally means salvation. But Joshua means Yahweh is salvation. Now, Hoshea was given to, the, to, to Joshua probably by his parents. And it's understandable to be given such a name. After all, they were born in slavery. They were in slavery at that time. And every parent's aspiration would be for their children to be able to come out of that slavery. And therefore, the name of salvation, may my child be saved. Even better still, may my child be a source to save others. But you see, this other name is completely different. Because in changing uh, Hoshea's name, what Moses did extra was he imprinted something far more important. It wasn't Joshua who was going to save Israel. It was God who was going to save Israel through Joshua. You see, that's a huge difference. Many times we think that we are the ones that's going to do something. We are the ones that's going to change the world. We are the ones that's going to make a big difference. When I was young, I had great aspirations. In fact, I had such great aspirations, I used to think to myself, oh, these were aspirations for God. I read about men who changed the world and, you know, who were men of faith like Kenneth Hagen, you know, uh, T.L. Osborne, and all these people, uh, uh, you know, um, Oral Roberts. And I thought to myself, hey, someday I want to preach to thousands, I want to change the world. You know what I was doing? I was dreaming for myself and I was using God, thinking that I was serving God. But in the end, I was hoping to use God for my own aggrandization. And that's what we all start with. That's what we all do. We think, this is for God. I want to do this for God. I want to do this. At the end, we are doing it for ourselves. And we are thinking that God is a ticket for us to get what we want. But there is a moment where Hoshea needs to become Joshua. There's a moment where we need to experience a change of name, where it's no longer us as the salvation, but God is the salvation. It's no longer us trying to do something, but it's God showing up and doing something through us. You see, let me tell you this. We are not the ones that's going to lead our families to victory. We are not the ones who are going to be able to guarantee a better future for our children. We are not the ones who can build something lasting and impactful. It's not us, us, us. we got to come to the terms that unless there is a shift where it becomes about Him, 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 it's not going to, we're not going to achieve anything. Amen? we got to come to a place of trusting Him, calling upon Him. Because we can't guarantee ourselves. And this is what delivers us from complaining. The fact that Joshua, in the change of his name, saw once and for all, it was Yahweh who was going to save them. And out of his mouth thereafter, every time he spoke, it was always, the Lord shall do this. The Lord shall help us. The Lord shall be able to do this. If God is with us, who can be against us? And that's what changes the language when we begin to see God. That's what changes our language. You see, I, I, read, I heard about this man, you know, who tried to go 40 days without complaining. 
You know, and every time he complained, he would start from zero, day zero again and start all over again. The last I heard, he's still trying. <laughs> Pastor Elijah texted me last night about 20 minutes after the end of the service. He said, I heard your message. I was convicted and I determined I was not going to complain. He said, 10 minutes later, I walked out of the house and I failed. <laughs> I was complaining already. Last week, I preached this message at Bugis. I finished it. I went to the car and when I reached the car, I said something and my son said to me, Dad, you're complaining. I'm telling you this. You try not complaining. You try. I guarantee you this half an hour if you can last. There's something so connected to our tongues that we just can't help it. And I'm not asking us to become perfect where there is no complaints that comes from us. I don't know if it's possible at all. But all I'm saying is this, God is showing us something more beyond what we are looking at around us, beyond the circumstances we're in. Because if you just see those things and you are just a Hoshea, as good as Hoshea was, you're still going to end up complaining. You're still not going to come to a place of satisfaction. That's why I say I'm not here to convict you. I'm here to point you to God. Joshua in our midst, amen. We all need to bear Joshua in our names. Yahweh is salvation. And when you just start seeing Him, you just focus on Him. Can I share something with you? I've been reading this book called, called The um, Silmar Silmarillion, which is written by J.R. Tolkien. And this is, you, you can go find out about it, okay? And of course, he's the author of Lord of the Rings. And, and he talked about, you know, the first of these creatures that fell, okay? And his name was Melkor. And he talked about how Melkor deceived, you know, uh, the firstborn of uh, Iluvata. And he said, Melkor didn't tell lies to them. He said, what he did was Melkor made them look at something else. They turned their eyes away and they looked at something and focused on something that they were not supposed to focus. And I thought to myself, this is, you know, Tolkien wrote all these things to express spiritual truths to us. I read his letter. When he wrote to the publisher, he talked about how he wanted to communicate God's truths to people through story. And, and the thing is this, right? Isn't that what it's all about? Sometimes God, the, the devil doesn't come and tell us lies. All he does is he takes our attention away from God. You stop looking and beholding at Yahweh, at the Lord, and suddenly everything around you goes dim, it goes dark, the light goes out of it. And a shadow comes over you, and before you know it, it's just complaints coming out. But if you keep your eyes always on the light, even in the darkest hour, there is a light that shines. And even in the greatest storm, as Pastor Wenhui preached this morning in the first service, there is a stability because your eyes are on God. Amen? And don't let the enemy take your eyes away from Him. Don't let the enemy take your eyes away. Keep your eyes upon Him. Let's all stand, shall we? And let's pray together and let's ask the Lord for His help. And I want to strongly encourage you, try, okay, try. When you step out of this place, say, I'm not going to complain. See how long you last, okay? We might give a gold medal to those uh, who last the longest. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, okay? But I tell you, instead of doing that, the better thing is to let's remind ourselves, let's aim to keep our eyes on God always. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for your goodness, your mercy, your graciousness. We thank you for, Lord, your word says that in thy light we see light, O God. May our eyes always be upon you, the light of Israel, the light of the world, O God. And we ourselves may be a reflection of that light that comes from you. Father, we ask you, we know that it will not be fully possible, maybe, but we ask you, O oh God, to change our hearts, Lord, change our attitudes before we seek to change, Lord, our mouths and stop ourselves from complaining, Lord. Lord, instead, we ask you to fill us with gratitude, fill us with a sight of you, of looking at you always, Lord. 
Lord, if we are in a place of Hoshia, bring us to a place of Joshua, Lord. If we are in a place where we're still looking at ourselves, bring us to a place where we're looking at you, oh God. We bless you, we give you praise, we give you glory, honour. And Lord, we pray and ask this all in Jesus' name. And I just speak and declare your blessings over your people, the blessings of God the Father, the blessings of God the Son, and the blessings of God the Holy Spirit be with you and abide with you now and forevermore. And everybody say, Amen. Come on, let's give the Lord a clap offering, shall we? You've just listened to a production of Cornerstone Community Church. Please note that all unauthorized reproduction, distribution, or sale of the recording is prohibited. For permission to reproduce or distribute the sermon, please write into mail at cscc.org.sg. We hope that you have been blessed.